0: you're listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations direct from our central london studio here's your host rory havelock this week on the ticker podcast Norge's bank jettisons coal investments uk regulator delivers ipo warning and a look at chinese fund house activity Welcome back to episode 51 of the Ticker Podcast. It's your weekly roundup for the top stories and headlines from around the world of investor relations. We're back in the IR Magazine studio. We've got Tim Human, Garnet Roach, and Condice de Montpetit. Good morning. Good morning. morning. And first up this week, we've heard of analysts and IROs moving from one world to the other, but uh, Condice shared what I think is the first evidence of a former IRO and Wall Street analyst who's moved into theatre. Yes, Ashley de Simone, who spent 11 years as a partner at consultancy Integrated Corporate Relations, says she decided to merge her passion for theatre with her financial expertise to launch a firm called Fortune Theatrical Ventures an investment vehicle for Broadway enthusiasts uh, De Simone who also worked as an equity research analyst at CIBC World Markets believes even Broadway lovies and investors can get along and benefit from a more formal approach to attracting backers the Fortune Theatrical launched early last year as De Simone was backed up by a New York theatre veteran Kevin McCollum she says that she quickly realised in the current status quo, most Broadway investors are well-to-do theatre experts who pursue a risky strategy of backing one show at a time uh, her company instead gives investors a more diversified approach with a chance to own minority stakes in an initial slate of seven musicals and plays still in development. She does concede, however, that even that strategy has its risks. She told Variety magazine that it should be seen as an alternative-alternative investment that is highly illiquid. That won't be winning many Wall Street investors over. Uh, but it does apply a portfolio approach to a risky world of birthing a stage show. Quote, the best producers can always get capital, she says, but even people who are just rich and big fans of the theatre want the process to be professionalised. Which sounds like a good idea, but my question for you guys is: Would you start backing a play in the UK? Would you, for example, ever want a stake in the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber investment fund? Back all his shows, give him a bit more money.
1: I'm not a massive uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. Um, no, but... <laughs> I, I asked
0: that in the hope that nobody really was, because <laughs> I know that I wouldn't put any money into that. <laughs> if you were responsible for, you know, backing the next Cats, could you really live with yourself?
2: I would only do the Lion King.
0: Just always back the Lion. I don't think they really need that much startup anymore, do they?
1: Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime was excellent. I'd say. well, that's Very the kind, kid. but
0: that is the kind of show that I guess would be. That was be really perfect. good. Um, we're just going to talk about the theatre now. It's turned into a theatre criticism podcast.
1: I also like, a, you know, a bit of mime, a bit of interpretive dance. Oh, so you're going to be the
0: alternative, alternative, alternative <laughs> investment alternative. vehicle <laughs> yes. for alternative theatre only. <laughs> anyway, it's still a few years away until you can invest in the ticker on the road theatre stage show production. Um, But we're going to move on to one of the world's biggest investors who's also trying to take a far less risky attitude to its holdings. Does that sound about right, Tim?
3: Yes. uh, Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, the largest in the world and a huge owner of listed equities, um, has unveiled a list of miners and power firms it has excluded from its investment universe. Uh, That's following a decision to ban investments in coal. Uh, The ban was introduced in February. And covers companies which base at least 30% of their activities on coal.
0: And who are some of the big names involved? Who are they getting rid of? The companies include
3: American Electric Power, China Shenhua Energy, uh, Whitehaven Coal, Tata Power, and uh, Peabody Energy, which uh, recently I think went bankrupt. So maybe not mm, a bit late to get out of that one. Um, There are 22 US firms in the group, uh, 7 Chinese firms and 7 Indian firms. So those are the sort of biggest countries represented. Um, the, a spokesperson for the bank uh, told Bloomberg, we are reviewing all relevant companies um, and there will be further exclusions. So this list looks set to grow. Uh, Norges did note that companies which plan to go below 30% of their activities on coal um, can stay part of their portfolio. So, I mean, that's something very important
0: for IR teams to be putting out there if that is the case with their company. Yeah, that's something stipulated by the Norwegian government, I think. They don't want to be backing anyone who derives more than 30% of that activity from from coal, um, are there any, any are there any signs that companies are communicating this issue well?
3: I don't think they are actually. I mean, it's interesting you point out that it, this has come from the government, and I think Norges has made the point that these rules are actually quite hard for it to interpret and work out um, how to follow because it's not their rules; it's something that's been passed on to them. And so they are they 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 have said that they are looking to companies as well as other sources for information on, for example, how much of people's activities is being based on coal. Um, com- companies are apparently not being particularly forthcoming with information in the uh, Norges press release about the exclusion there's a bit of a bit of a snarky comment really that says that it contacted 50 of these companies in advance of making the list public and only five of them responded uh, the bank said quote that's a bit disappointing uh, which, uh, which does sound a bit disappointing doesn't it i think that's some classic uh, scandinavian understatement there i do like the use of uh, candid language in in press releases <laughs>
1: Well, it's quite surprising, really. I mean, you hear so much about how companies want to target these big sovereign wealth funds, and obviously Norjus is a massive sovereign wealth fund, so to be contacted by them and to not respond... Um, doesn't seem like a very good idea really does it?
3: No it does seem a bit remiss especially if you're a, like a big company that should be communicating with all your sort of major shareholders. I do know that some companies view Norges as a sort of an activist investor in the sort of ESG space and so they do worry a bit when they uh, become a shareholder and maybe they, they're trying to distance themselves from that that shareholder a bit. It can be done
0: and that is not the only divestment headline from this week is that right Tim?
3: No I thought I'd pick up on another uh, divestment story. Yeah this is an interesting one coming out of the states which is that calpers the uh, californian pension fund is thinking about reinvesting in tobacco uh, 16 years after it dropped uh, tobacco it divested from tobacco companies in terms of its portfolio i'm not quite sure what you call that really um un- undivestment undivesting um dis- disinvesting I'd revesting t- yeah reuters said the uh, institutional investor will take uh, 12 to 24 months to consider the issue that sounds like quite slow decision making um but although it will allow them to test the idea out, you know, in the public domain, see if any health groups kick up a fuss, for example, and whether they want to change their mind. According to a study last year, the tobacco exclusion has cost CalPERS uh, between 2 and $3 billion since it made this decision. So in this case, it, it appears there's a pretty clear decision for the investor to make between uh, profits for its members and, and sort of its principles in regard to uh, tobacco companies.
0: I guess there's also a fear as well that industries like tobacco and oil and gas might become... More heavily regulated the companies themselves, right? And that the the products they produce will be less socially acceptable, right? So, then maybe there's a bit of future proofing going on as well.
3: Yeah, and that, I think that certainly appears to be true, for example, with coal, because we've seen a lot of coal companies getting into trouble recently. Tobacco ones, on the other hand, I think they generate huge amounts of money still and pay very large dividends. So, are pretty attractive to a lot of shareholders.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll see how that progresses over the next few months. We're going to move on to Garnet, who also has a story from a bit closer to home. And it's the FCA who are making some noise about IPO activity. Is that right?
1: Last week, um, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority um, came out with some news that it's talking about shaking up the London listings market. And this is something that's come out of a study of competition in investment banking, which the FCA announced more than a year ago.
0: What exact issues are the FCA trying to address then?
1: Well, the report paints a picture of an uncompetitive market, which is dominated by big banks, those with the big balance sheets um, to lend from, and with many potential conflicts of interest. One of, the things it's hi- one of the things it highlights is the current blackout period, which usually lasts two weeks, when analysts from banks working on an IPO do not publish research ahead of the sale prospectus being released. What the FCA says is that those analysts get favoured access to company management while other analysts do not get that vital contact with the company bosses, ultimately stifling independent research. It also means that investors receive important information quite late in the process. The FCA adds that some banks may reward favoured investors when allocating shares in an IPO, creating further conflicts of interest.
0: Not so good. How does the FCA propose that we deal with this?
1: Well, for a start, it says that the practice of tying companies in for future deals should end. The FCA also suggests delaying the release of research by banks working on the IPO until after the prospectus is published and ensuring that analysts are not linked to the offer are also invited to meet with management. In terms of what exactly could be done, the FCA is looking for responses to its report to decide if rule changes are actually needed. It does note, though, that IPO practices do differ across the EU, despite the harmonised regulatory framework, and across international markets, of course. The report states, "...earlier prospectus publication is a feature in many jurisdictions, in some, notably the US, connected research publication is prohibited throughout the IPO process and immediately afterwards." It goes on to talk about the. Uh, it goes on to talk about Lord Miners' um, review of the Royal Mail IPO, and states that it particularly highlighted the market practice in France for the approved registration document to be published early in the process. That doesn't mean, of course, that the UK plans to follow either of these examples, though. And um, in a statement that it issued, um, Christopher Woolard, the FCA's Director of Strategy and Competition, says, quote, we want to start a discussion on changing the sequence of the IPO process to make the market work better by giving investors the right information at the right time.
0: And I guess the question for listeners to the ticker is, what does this mean for IROs?
1: Well, the proposed changes um, themselves wouldn't necessarily affect investor relations as a profession. But what the FCA is looking for, really, is the fair dissemination of information. So what that might mean is an increase in the number of companies looking to take on an IR person ahead of going public. We've actually had a look at um, pre-IPO IR in the past. There's an article about that on the website. And um, my article on the FCA's proposed shake-up also features some insight from David Lloyd Seed, Deputy Chair of the UK's IR Society.
0: Yes, find it on IRmagazine.com, all the latest news there, obviously. Interestingly enough, another article about competition on our homepage at the moment has been written by Condice, and it's been looking at the Chinese market a bit more closely.
2: Yes, a yearly ranking published by a Shanghai-based consulting firm called z Advisors reveals that uh, global asset managers lack competitiveness for the Chinese market. So the study examined uh, 100 investment managers to come up with the, the 25 most active foreign fund houses in China. They looked at uh, three aspects onshore asset management, inbound flow, and uh, outbound flow.
0: And who is in and out of their ranking this year?
2: Well, JP Morgan uh, comes in on top with a 51.1% score, followed by UBS, BNP, Baiba, uh, Invesco, and Schroders. An interesting finding was that some smaller sized firms, such as uh, Italy's Eurozone, Hong Kong's Value Partners, and uh, US based Pinebridge, are much more dynamic in China than big household names like um, Franklin Templeton, Goldman Sachs, or AXA IM. And that's reportedly due to the fact that most of those majors don't have a proper, uh, well-thought-out China strategy. The advisory said, quote, The fact that the top-ranked manager in our survey only achieved a score of a little over 50% highlights the huge growth potential in China for even the best position manager. It is the same growth potential that also provides those firms ranked outside the top 25 the opportunity to gain ground on their peers if they prove successful in executing on a well-designed China strategy.
0: But I guess the flip side to that is that institutional investors have traditionally been a bit wary of dipping their toes in the Chinese market, no?
2: Yes, and uh, one of the reasons might be that they're required to do a a joint venture with a local partner who's um, going to hold a a majority stake. So so there are often some uh, control issues, of course. However, the report highlights that the the mutual fund sphere in China is, quote, one of the most underrepresented and underserviced financial markets in the world. And that's despite the fact that assets under management have grown from 400 billion in 2010 to 1.3 trillion in 2015 and are expected to reach $3 trillion by 2021, according to z
0: That's really interesting. I would have thought that investors would, you know, be clamoring for some exposure to the Chinese market. Presumably there's a lot of money to be made there. They,
2: they did clamor a bit, uh, but maybe about 10 years ago, I know, I remember I had a, a friend who was um, moving to China to open a joint venture with uh, some local partner. And um, a few years later, he just uh, <laughs> resigned and uh, joined another asset management firm after a very, apparently a quite traumatic experience. Wow. Uh, as I said, control issues um mm. the the local partner are saying oh no well you know i mean we we're, we're the local ones we know the business and um and by the way um all the money goes back to us
0: <laughs> yeah not not ideal i think it is a very different business environment as well it must be quite hard to to get on with sometimes
3: well some of the stories over the last couple of years of well have shown that the stock market is kind of pumped up a bit there as well with sort of government support and um so as an investor if you're trying to find like good value that might be quite hard, I think, and you've, there's quite a lot of nasty surprises out there.
2: Yeah, both the stock and the bond markets are, yeah, a bit um, on steroids. <laughs> Stick to investing in theatre. I
1: say. Yes, British theatre. That's yes. what we
0: want. Well, anyway, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a landscape that's going to change dramatically as, as even predict in the next couple of years. But anyway, before we, before we get on our, our Chinese soapbox, I think we've just about run out of time for this week's Ticker. Um, Thanks, everyone, for joining us again this week. Thank you, Laurie. Cheers, Laurie. And we'll be back next time with some special edition podcasts about the US and Canadian Awards. Goodbye. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.